No Richard today. Richard Fishbourne is over at Malvern Spring Garden Show. So Farmer Phil and Heather are sat here all on their own on the Wiggly sofa. Welcome to the Wiggly podcast. And hello for me. Best place for him, actually. Stick him out on a hot showground. He'll get sunburnt with a bit of luck today. That's That'll a bit him, harsh, Phil. Keep him out of mischief, won't it? He's doing lots of talks, and either before him or after him is Bridget Strawson, who is the lady that did the TV show of how difficult it is to be green. And I think now maybe it's easier to be green. So she's talking at the show. So if you get a chance to pop along to Malvern, you've missed it. Because it was last week, because we're recording this before next week. There we are. Hey, festival's coming up and there's lots of interesting people that are talking there and cherry booze. (laughs) (laughs) Oh dear. This week's show is a special because we go PDing with Farmer Phil. Now, those of you that have been stalwart listeners that have downloaded the complete archive, oh, little secret, Michael's made a widget, which means that if you're a Mac user, you can have a little widget at the bottom of your screen. But I'm not supposed to tell you about that because it's not ready yet to be downloaded. But anyway... What was I saying? I don't know. PDing. You, you P-D-ing. were witching on something about those horrible Mac computers that mm. you insist on using. Rubbish. Uh, PDing, That's for what those I of say. you that have listened many times in the past, is not anything except. Pregnancy diagnosing. For those among you who are not sure what happens, the vet seems to come along and ram his hand up the cow's bits. So so we'll hear about that. And the second thing we're going to talk about is Farmer Phil and his crop rotation. Well, I should say, just to introduce the PDing clip, is that the reason that we pregnancy test cattle, uh, there, there are several reasons, but one, we want to know when they calve or when they're going to calve so that we can put them in an appropriate place where we can keep an eye on them in case anything goes wrong. Two, we need to make sure that they're fed accordingly because we don't want them to be either over or underfed leading up to calving. And three, if for any reason they're not in calf, we want to try and find out why they're not in calf and either correct it, or if we can't correct it, then sadly they're likely to become an ex-cow on the basis that a cow that can't breed isn't a fat lot of use to us. So that those are the main reasons for pregnancy testing the cattle. And what we were doing the other day was just doing a small bunch that were essentially the stragglers from last year to just check which ones were in calf, which ones weren't, and to sort them out and move them home, those that were going to calve. Why don't you just artificially inseminate them and then you wouldn't have any bothered because the bull wouldn't be technically involved? The bull is much better at it than the artificial inseminator and that wouldn't be a fat lot of fun for penguin, would it? Essentially, you're much, particularly if you've got a cow which, for whatever reason, might be a little bit less likely to get in calf, you're much more likely to get her in calf with the bull than you are with AI. And with a a suckler herd such as ours, they're out in the field, it's very difficult to determine accurately when oestrus is. Right. So, more practically, 
You know, we've heard about trying to round up pigs, and that's not the simplest of things. Explain how you herd cattle. Is it like the cowboys? So you sort of have a horse and some dogs and things and go rolling, 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 <laughs> roll hide. And where did you put them? In my book, herding cattle is not about raw hide and so on, but then again I have the advantage of fences and hedges and gates and things which make it somewhat easier. But moving cattle about is a bit like mind over matter. You've probably seen a sheepdog working sheep on the television and that they can control them at a distance just by looking at them and their attitude and so on. And the best people with cattle are the people who can do that. If the cattle will respect you, they'll move away from you. That is only mucked up when you involve the bull because his prime objective is to keep the cattle for himself. And sometimes some bulls, and we've had them in the past, they won't let you herd the cattle out of the field. They'll try and chase them back into the field. They'll say, they're staying with me. I'm not letting you herd them anywhere. But notwithstanding that, that's how you do it. And, and I prefer to do it quietly and not whoop and holler too much and chase them about it always ends in tears and so they go into the pen do they we put them into the uh, handling system and we put each cow in the cattle crush which is like a sort of big cow sized crate that holds her comfortably and safely so that the vet can then examine her here we go let's hear who's the vet the vet's bill bill main bill who you may have heard on our post-mortem of a calf many many episodes ago bill main scottish vet not in calf. She's fit, she's getting on fat, and she's got a big corpus of tail on her right over, so she's cycling, she's not in calf. Here we are, we're pregnancy testing a few cows that weren't in calf last summer, just to find out whether they got in calf at the back end or whether they're not going to get in calf. And we're with Bill Main again, he of uh, calf post-mortem fame and he is in classic vet pose with his right arm in a cow's bottom. And this is probably what everybody who doesn't know thinks about having seen James Herriot et al, that that's all vets ever do, is stand around with their hands in cow's bottoms. But anyway, Bill, tell me what you're looking for and what, you, what you're feeling and what you're actually doing. Okay, I've got my hand up this cow's rectum. Vets love orifices. If you don't know that already, it doesn't matter whether it's a rectum, a mouth, a vagina, or whatever. We like to get our hands up there. I'm fitting this cow's uterus at the moment. It's a non-pregnant uterus. Two small horns. Each one is probably about a centimetre and a half in diameter. Quite thick-walled. And she's actually got structures in her ovaries, which tells me that she's cycling. But unfortunately, she obviously uh, she's not in calf, which means that the decision is now then up to you as to whether you're going to cash her in on get this high cull value for her um, at the moment or whether you're going to keep her around and try her again with the ball. If she's nice, if she's nice to me, she'll get a second chance. But so for the uninitiated, what you're actually doing is from within the rectum, so through the rectum's wall, you are feeling the whole of the cow's womb and you're also able to feel her ovaries to tell whether there are eggs ready to be released from the ovary in the form of corpus luteae. Uh, well, I wish that reproductive physiology was quite so straightforward as that. But well, essentially, that's what you told me last week. <laughs> but ultimately, it's a wee bit more complicated than that. The corpulatia are just signs that the cow actually did ovulate. And these stay there for the length of the cycle. And if the cow gets pregnant, they're maintained throughout the pregnancy. So really, if you have a corpulatia and they're either cycling or they're pregnant, um, and this cow's not in calf. Um, 
But actually, uh, uh, Philip, I actually just want to double check this one with a scanner just to make doubly sure. Ideal technology and toys to come out. Okay, I'm going to put the scanner on now, and I'm just doing it in tendon mode, just getting to the right mode, so, it so we have different penetrations through the rectum. Over the early pregnancy stage, that would be fine. Right, if I just come in behind the cow... Now, what, what we've got here, Bill, Bill is a keen advocate of his toys, and he's got one of his favourite toys here, which normally goes with a head mask that makes him look like Joe 90. And essentially, it's the same thing as is used in hospitals by doctors to detect human pregnancies. But in this case, we put the sensor into the cow's rectum because the cow is too large to do it from the outside. So that what Bill is doing is using ultrasound to scan the cow's uterus from within. And the reason he's doing that is that he might be able to detect a very early pregnancy which is what he's found now look uh, there it is Hang on. there's a little black hole there this this is going to go a penetration of about two and a half centimeters and with the lack of penetration it's actually got uh, the machine it's got is, is very sensitive it's, it's uh, it runs on a, on a battery and I quite often carry a headpiece there but that cow this got this cow here you can see the size of the black hole is roughly about a centimeter tall and not much more wide and that tells me roughly this cow is going to be about 26 days 28 days pregnant tops okay which is exactly what we thought when i was telling you it wasn't pregnant as i was talking i could just feel this tiny softness so this cow is definitely worthwhile keeping even if you well you're called but um you're going to be keeping her for a further eight months with a, a calf at the end of it but hopefully keeping her through the summer months won't cost you too much i've lost it now because she's straining on me which is another, so another issue. That the, the advantage here is that with a manual PD, what Bill is detecting or trying to detect with early pregnancies is to just find thicknesses in the horn of the uterus which suggest to him that there is an embryo there. But with the scanner, he can find that embryo, which he has done again now, at an earlier stage, and it shows up as a black blob on the which on the is, picture which is uterine fluid i mean these swellings these swellings on the scanner are you know a centimeter large so they're very 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 small and you're fitting it through a glove through a rectum and through a very thick walled uterus and a cow which has had quite a few calves so you really it, it is it's, it can be quite tricky and sometimes when they're so small you've got to do it with mechanical means, in other words, with a scanner rather than just using your hand alone. But I had an inkling that there was something in here at the beginning. Okay, well, let's go. So that's good news, thanks to the scanner. Her bacon is saved for a minute. I've had a great week this week. I've been speaking at the Young Enterprise Awards in Hereford, and that was fantastic. Lots of schools putting together businesses which they've run for a year, and I think it's the way we should go, Phil. I didn't manage to go this year, but I went last year, and the diversity of ideas they have is just fantastic, and they're really enthusiastic about them too. So if you were there, lovely to see you, and well done, David Stevens, for arranging the whole event. And I also went to Highgrove, and I've been to Highgrove around a farm before and got completely inspired once again by David Wilson, and I took him 
the podcast recordings because he's not into technology on CDs. And I also took him the catalogue and he was so pleased to see his pig starring on the front. Well, his pig's tail starring (laughs) on the front and uh, asked him, could we book some more pigs for this year? Did you know that there are less than 500 large black pigs in existence? Is that right? Hmm. That is rare breed. It's 499 now, because one of them's in our freezer. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that one wasn't counted as a breeding adult. But interestingly, the article I read suggested that they're actually rarer than the saber-toothed tiger. Whether that's actually right or not, I don't know, but... It's not quite the same thing, though, is it? Because it's not species, it's just different breed. Well, there are different sorts of tigers, I assume, but that was the journalist bit. But I thought less than 500 was not many. You know, one dose of foot and mouth in the wrong place, and that's the end of that. Mm. And as was shown previously, that it was nearly the end of one or two breeds of, of sheep, notably the Herdswick, I think it's called. Well, Prince Charles is patron of the Rare Breed Survival Trust, isn't he? Mm, I believe he is. Anyway, I saw lots of rare breeds yesterday, including some most gorgeous cattle, Ayrshire's. Are they a rare breed? I think they are a rare They're a breed. They're specialist breed, and I've seen them. They are great. And they were doing everything corking, in my opinion. They were feeding tiny amounts of grain to their cattle. Their cattle were out on pasture. There was clover. It was organic. A little tip for your wisteria. You need poor soil, and you need to really keep the roots bound somehow. Because he said otherwise you get lots of leaves and no flowers. And I've just looked at our wisteria and it looks lovely. Little tip for wisteria, if you put a big paving slab on top of its roots next to it, that apparently helps for the same reason. Keeps it dry, keeps the soil impoverished and make it flower. But more than that, you need Farmer Phil to clip it (laughs) in February and July. (laughs) Farmer Phil has failed this year. It will need a big clipping next year. Anyway, of course I get inspired by the organic garden and the organic farming. And so this morning I decide that Farmer Phil needs his cup of tea outside in the field to discuss crop rotation, which is really, really important. So let's have a listen in. As you know, I've been at Highgrove again this week and I've been subjected to the Soil Association's view on the world, which I tend to wholeheartedly agree with. But what they were talking about a lot was the difference between organic farming and conventional farming which I think is funny in itself. Organic really is conventional, uh, but from a different age, isn't it? Well, farming is farming, and it's just a question of how you do it. And Organic versus conventional is a political thing. What you actually do in terms of growing your crops is your farming, or in your garden is your gardening. And whether you choose to do certain things or not, depending on certain reasons, is normal, isn't it? 
well, sort of, except I would um, definitely argue that some of the things that some farmers do definitely isn't agriculture, it's agribusiness, and it's not based around the natural properties that your land has got. So, you know, there's no way that you can compare organic farming to intensive pig production, intensive chicken production, intensive turkey production... So it's not quite as rosy as you're making out. No, no, I didn't mean it to sound particularly rosy, and I agree with you that if you have a... Basically, the the enterprises you've mentioned are essentially shed-based. If it wasn't for the effluent and and the smell and things like that, they might as well be on an industrial estate as on a farm. They don't actually use the farmland other than to dispose of the waste. You see... Oh, by the way, dear listener, all that traffic isn't because we turned Wiggly Wigglers into um, town, it's because it's the moment in time where everybody arrives at work. So, welcome Wigglets. <laughs> um, so, uh, what I want to talk about is crop rotation, yeah. because from what I understand, with an organic method, say you've got a seven-year rotation, yeah. for three years you plant clover yeah. and stuff like that, yeah. and cows happily graze on it looking absolutely beautiful and the clover fixes the nitrogen in the soil and that allows you to have another four years of crops that take nitrogen out of the soil like oats and wheat and barley and whatever now to me that makes complete sense and I think the main difference between organic farming and conventional farming therefore is the addition of ammonium nitrate the bagged stuff that comes from gosh i don't know where Uh, in in our case liverpool is it made in liverpool yeah is it mined in liverpool no you make ammonium nitrate it is i thought you dug it out of the ground as well no ammonium nitrate is is a a straight chemical you make it in a chemical factory if you're going to sit on the trailer if you want to so in your case i'm looking at the field that seems to have been yellow yep. for some reason and now you're turning over you're ploughing it yep so you've got some sort of rotation going <laughs> yeah <laughs> <laughs> what's what's the difference well the because difference... i've never seen cows out here <clears throat> no the difference is you see in this case our rotation is obviously adjusted by adding ammonium nitrate into the system but in 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 this example, you've got quite a good example because the yellow that you can see are the regrown remnants of a stubble turnip crop. Well, it looks like rape. Yeah, well, it's very similar plant brassica, but it was a crop of roots that sheep had been grazing over the winter time. Yeah. And we're now ploughing those remnants in because <clears throat> they are surplus to requirements. They actually fulfil quite a useful purpose because the root crop mops up any nitrogen, makes sure we use it all rather than let it leach away so that it mops up any spare that's been left over from the previous crop make sure that, 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 that it's used and so now effectively we're ploughing in a green manure and then this field is going to be planted with peas which is one aspect of our rotation and peas to us do what clover does for the organic farmers they fix nitrogen now for the following wheat crop that will reduce our ammonium nitrate uh, input into that crop not by a lot I grant you but it does help and so that the act of having this it's a, it's a complete cereal break it fixes some nitrogen 
and also it spreads our workload because it's a spring-sown crop. There are obviously other advantages to that, which are in the main accidental, but there are advantages nonetheless. Why don't you just give up and go organic? It's obviously the best system because it closes more loops. It's obviously the way to go because peak oil is with us. The energy that's taken to make nitrogen is the greatest aspect of farming that there is. It makes absolutely no sense whatsoever when you've got a natural source that's available that you could then graze and it just makes complete sense i just cannot see your point move on farmer phil when the writing's on the wall read it good quote but i just don't i i missed the f word (laughs) i don't um believe in the totally organic principle i do believe that organic farming has lessons for us conventional farmers to learn and I think you're dead right that there very likely will come the day that the priorities on where our oil is used will change. But right now, those priorities are reflected in, A, the price of nitrogen fertiliser, which is going up, and the price of food, which is going up. Now, for me, as a businessman, I don't believe that... Businessman? Well, yeah, I try. I've called you Farmer Phil all these years, and you're telling me you're a businessman? Well, the idea is to try, isn't it? Right. But essentially, it will be price that dictates whether or not the, the system that I run is viable as world conditions change, so that if the lack of oil means that fertiliser becomes too expensive to use, then obviously we will use less of it. We'll also use for alternative sources of nitrogen such as other waste products or other nitrogen fixing crops which is where I agree with you that the organic sector has lessons for us to learn and I think you're right that quite possibly in the future it may be that we use clover in a rotation to fix nitrogen to reduce our requirement for bag nitrogen. I don't believe you. I think that it is purely tradition. I think that you are biased because you like big green tractors and big green combines and you really like going out and seeing a field like this how big is this field 35 acres going out and seeing <coughs> it turned over in a beautiful i mean if you look but at if it, it now, was organic it would still require plowing from time to time and it would still require harvesting so it has organic has no <coughs> no effect on machinery requirements at all except to say that probably you'd be adding a much more diverse mix of crops into the system ah so you that you'd have a diverse, lot of vegetables diverse mix of crops i have a nine-year rotation yeah. which includes as my break crop grass for seed and peas now I would concede that it's not perfect in as much that you know that the organic rotation including more clover probably has more benefits in the round but at the same time my rotation is a much better compromise than say just wheat and and rape which is the other extreme in my view the grass will put the organic matter back into the soil the peas will help explain to me the wheat and rape rotation because i've heard a lot about that and it seems that you just plant rape then wheat then rape then wheat then rape that's about the measure of it so why would you possibly do that well, it's, what's the story behind essentially, that? Essentially, it is about covering as many acres as you can with as few people 
more machines and that, that simplifies it all you need is the machine to plant the crop the rape or the the wheat and you need the machine to harvest it now in those two cases that's the same machine you have a grain store which has two compartments wheat compartment and rape compartment and you plonk it all in there it's simple you can get across large acreages for lower costs and that that's where it comes from and right now the price of rape and wheat are escalating rapidly or have escalated they seem to have stopped for a minute and that's what drives that that idea in this part of the world you would add into that rotation roots mostly potatoes and stretch it to sort of three or four years but that it's it's, it's essentially the same thing so what will end up happening because presumably i mean i can't think that you're going to add much organic matter to the soil in that case and i can't think that potatoes do your land much good it's a very interesting thing potatoes <clears throat> as long as the weather is good are a really good break crop they're not very good for the soil structure because they're obviously totally removed from a cereal they totally break the cycle of disease and problem but if the weather's bad they're a disaster they require a lot of remedial work to the field afterwards and we've stopped renting land out for potatoes partly for that reason and partly because we can make our rotation work over the whole farm rather than rent land out for potatoes and watch them wreck it so compare your rotation in your opinion for a holistic approach and a business you know so so put in there in in the stew pot your economics but also the biodiversity i don't know the skylark population why have you chosen what you've chosen why is that better than rape and wheat or even the organic method well, which i don't believe for for us the our rotation has evolved based around the fact that we produce most or if not all of our crops for seed and that means that the rules if for no other reason state that you have to have certain breaks in terms of years between different varieties of the same crop and different species of crops so for example to change varieties of grass seed you have to have four clear years where you've not grown grass in that field before you can change so that that's what drives my rotation apart from that you can only grow two wheats back to back because the root disease in wheat known as take-all will overcome the crop and it takes you many many years to overcome take-all you know if you grow continuous wheat after about seven years you get back to the yield that you started with but in the meantime you've gone through very poor yield so i'm not interested in that and the other reason for our rotation is it spreads the workload it would be very difficult for us if all our crops came to harvest in the same week and the idea of having different crops is that in our case the barley will ripen first then the grass seed then the wheat and the peas will fiddle in somewhere but if you have a large acreage of the same crop then you're faced with covering that large acreage in a very short space of time and in our climate even more so so that that's the reason for the rotation in terms of biodiversity we have a certain amount of spring cropping which helps and the grass seed would spring be cropping well they're planted now rather right. than before christmas um so that obviously that leaves us a percentage of the farm as overwintered stubbles or root crops for sheep which is quite a good enhancement for biodiversity and the grass seed crop which is usually a two-year crop so that once put down 
it's there for two years we combine it two years and that has proved to be a fantastic uh, habitat for uh, skylarks and all the small mammals the, the, the voles and, and field mice just love it in there and consequently the birds of prey that hunt those animals enjoy the grass seed the other issue that is quite important to us in the current climate is that things like grass seed require a lot less nitrogen to grow them so that it's in theory at any rate a cheaper crop to grow and so from a business point of view that helps and with the escalating price of fuel and nitrogen that helps more why don't you compost your cow manure spread it on your land instead of using bags of nitrogen well that for is, one start you know towards that is the, the one the downside of the seven-year clover i don't know about rotation. Utopia, but that is the one downside of growing seed crops because obviously a seed a crop of seed has to be uncontaminated by other plants of the same variety and now for our purposes our cattle are bedded on barley straw and they eat grass seed straw both of which have seeds of those plants in them now if we spread that muck out on the field it doesn't matter how hard you compost it or whatever you will never get rid of all of those seeds and for us when they grow in the following crop that means somebody's got to go out and rogue them if they can see them rogue them means go and pick them by hand because you can't spray the same species out of the same crop for obvious reasons and so and if there are too many you can't do it so you lose the seed crop in terms of grass seed that's total disaster because you've then got no crop at all it's just hay then and in terms of cereals you lose your premium for growing it for seed and it becomes a bog standard feed crop for the commodity market which is, which is not something that we aim to do too much of. It's middle May now. Shouldn't you have planted this, these peas before? Well, that's true. But we have worked out over the years that it is better to wait for the weather and soil conditions and plant them late into warm soil in perfect weather conditions than to try and plant them by the calendar into less than ideal conditions. A, a small pea seems to be highly vulnerable to cold and wet and so on I heard Guy Smith on the Face podcast the other day and he was talking about planting peas and he says his granddad used to tell him to go out take his trousers down and put his bare bum on the earth and if it was too cold not to plant and if it wasn't uh, that he should plant so is that the farmer Phil um, way of doing it <laughs> well I, I'd not heard these Essex boys do tend to have some rather strange habits and the, the prospect of Guy wandering around his farm in South East Essex with his trousers around his ankles <laughs> seems to be quite an amusing one but he's dead right that, that it's much better to plant the peas into a warm soil they will germinate and grow away They're, they'll have caught up within a couple of weeks come on then let's go and have a look at it get your trousers off farmer phil (laughs) (laughs) oh well she does go on doesn't she she obviously is pretty inspired by david wilson but we'll look forward to next week when she interrogates me about large green machines in the meantime let's have a quick monty cast before we go MontyCast, a weekly fact on farming. The oldest cow ever recorded was Big Martha. 
She reached 48 in 1993. Another Monty Cast, a weekly fact on farming, next week. for me. Next week we'll hear about Farmer Phil and the drill. Not the double blacker. <laughs> double blacker? <laughs> What's it called? Black and the black and wrecker. <laughs> Next week we'll hear about Farmer Phil and his drill. Not the black and... What's it? Not the bubble... Next week, we'll hear about Farmer Phil and his drill, not the... Dentist drill. Dentist drill, the double decker. <laughs> <laughs> Phil, just say, that was an interesting piece you recorded, Heather. What's up next?